Hello, this is Nathan Ray, and this is... Varun. Varun. How do we know each other? Well, we met at a online Zoom group. It's a bunch of believers, Christian believers, young in their early 20s, I'd say, and just on fire for God, and kind of meeting on a weekly basis. Just kind of joined the group, and we've been connecting on a weekly basis. Is there anything that you'd say stuck out about me when we first met? Yeah, so I initially I was, you know, a little camera shy. There were so many people on the call. And so I was more focused on myself rather than anybody else. But I was intrigued to see that there were so many, uh, you know, a diversity of people. And from all sorts of different places, we had people from the west end of the country, Canada, people in Toronto, with people in the States. So that was very interesting to see. And I didn't have the opportunity to put the connections together to see how everybody knew each other. But I was more concerned about my my own self and how I would kind of fit into the group rather than anybody else. If that sounds a little self-centered. <laughs> no, it makes sense. When you're going in and you're seeing people, it can be overwhelming. Like I think there are about 20 people who come into the Zoom meeting every week. And even I find it a little bit hard to keep track of people's names. It doesn't really help the fact that some people come one week, they leave another, they come back the week after that. And so you don't always see a consistent group. There are some consistent names and faces that makes up like 70, 80% of the people there. And the rest of the group just seems to be casually passing through. Something that I think I found interesting on my end about you is that you're correct when you say that we're part of a very diverse group, but I would also point out that our group is majority black. And so when you see someone who's not black, that sort of instinctively calls attention to those who are different. It's not a bad thing, just kind of natural. And so when I saw you for the first time, I think I remember thinking you looked Hispanic. That's funny because I get that a lot. <laughs> No, I'm actually East Indian, but I was born in Toronto, raised in Toronto. Yeah, but I do get that a lot. I speak French. So through French, I was able to pick up a little bit of Spanish. And my frequent travels to Latin American countries allow me to learn a little bit more Spanish. But yeah, I kind of have that Latino look. Some people are able to tell right away that I'm Indian, but a lot of people would say that I'm, I look Latino which is a good thing, I guess. I like the Latin culture, so it'd be good to, to pick up a little bit more Spanish. Do people mistake you for being Latin American, even when you're down in Latin America? Oh, definitely, yes. But then when I start opening my mouth, then they realize, uh, yeah, something's off. This guy's not from here. <laughs> I'm guessing you don't sound Spanish enough. Yeah, it would be in my best interest to kind of polish up on the Spanish. I got the pronunciation down, Pat. I just have to expand my vocabulary and kind of get better handle on the grammar. And I think I should be golden. But yeah, East Indian mom and dad. It's actually funny. I did a, a DNA test, you know, the 23andMe type DNA test. It was through another company, but the results came back over 60% East Indian. And I was quite surprised. So it goes back 50 generations. So through those 50 generations that I traced, apparently I've got about 21% Italian. So I was kind of surprised to see that because I all I know is that my ancestors are from East India, but I guess there was some mixing that took place somewhere within those 50 generations. But yeah, that was just a little bit about my ancestral DNA. 
Do you speak any languages that come from East India, or is it just mainly English, French, and a little bit of Spanish? I speak Punjabi and I speak Hindi. More Punjabi than I do Hindi. Hindi is more of the uh, national language. Although they have many languages in India, the government basically communicates with its people. The federal government, at least, mainly through Hindi. So I, I understand it, but I would say that I speak more Punjabi than I do Hindi. Okay. So the group that we're a part of, it's kind of like a Bible study. We're both believers in God and Jesus. If I might ask, how has God been working in your life as of late? He's given me, especially during this pandemic, I'm not going to lie, there's been a lot of lows, a lot of loneliness, a lot of isolation. I'm single, I live on my own. But in this pandemic, I would say from a financial standpoint, I have not had any issues. I think I've made more money through this pandemic than I had any other year of my working life. So that's a testimony in itself. I truly think that being a tither, I think that from a spiritual standpoint, helped me to be fruitful in that area of my life. Just showing God my obedience through tithing, I think. He was able to bless me with the finances that I have. And now I'm just looking to be a better steward of those finances. And I think I've been looking at it more like it's God's money rather than mine. And I think that shift of that mindset has allowed me to be more responsible with my money. Because I was making less money in the past, but I was also spending more frivolously. And I think not only has my life has been better in the sense that God's been providing more through opportunities I'm working. And I think he's giving me a little bit more wisdom as to how to manage those finances and how to look at them. So you're not dropping $900 on a big screen TV? Yeah, no, I actually don't even have a TV. I basically work with my laptop and a cell phone. I don't have a TV at home, but I haven't had a TV in a while. But yeah, my big thing was eating out a lot going out to restaurants on a regular basis. I try to keep a $10 rule of thumb. If my meal costs more than $10, it's over the budget. But altogether, I was I was eating frequently. I was having a lot of those $10 meals and they're certainly adding up and they're adding up fast. So I've been cooking at home a little bit more and I feel like that's allowed me to be a better steward of the finances that God's entrusted me with. But that was a major area of weakness in my life when it came to spending too much money outside in restaurants. Might I ask how you were able to make so much money in a time when the economy was crashing and burning? So I've been uh, investing my money. I've been trying to spend less and save more, but not just leave that money in a savings account. I've been moving that money into investments. For example, I've invested in Suncor, Enbridge, a couple companies to name a few. I did some research on it, consulted with a couple people who are successful investors. And with their guidance, I was able to make use of the opportunity to save my money and minimize my spending. That's good. It's really good to seek out advice from people who know better than you. Yeah, absolutely. And they're successful at it too, yeah. Yeah. Do you think you have enough to fall back on in case your stocks crash and burn? Yeah, I honestly think that I've spread out the money in a way that I think I'll be good. But ultimately, I feel like God's my safety net. As long as I'm responsible with my finances, I feel like as a tither, you're also putting a hedge of protection around your finances. I was listening to a preacher, Robert Morris, and he was talking about how 
the money in your bank account can have one of two spirits, either a spirit of mammon or the spirit of God over it. And it all depends on what you decide to do with those finances. And so tithing is a really big one of it. He said, be a giver, but also be a good steward of your finances and be a tither. So those are three main principles that I've been trying to stick by. Uh, I haven't been 100%, but I'm, I've been trying my best and I think God's been gracious. That's good. If I might go into detail about how God has been working my life over the past week. A couple days ago, I was watching a friend's wedding being live streamed on YouTube. Of course, here in Alberta, we can't have mass scale weddings anymore. And so for the benefit of anyone who wanted to see the wedding, you could just hop on the live stream and watch it for yourself. And I happened to be of two minds as I was watching the wedding. First of all, I was very glad to see my friend getting married to her boyfriend. I was glad to see that they were able to come together and pull through in some very difficult circumstances. But on the other hand, I was also feeling extremely angry. And the reason why I was feeling so angry was that I knew that I was watching the live stream in the presence of certain friends of mine who I had fallen out of favor with. I'm pretty sure you know the kind of people I'm talking about. I could see their names in the chat, and I don't know if it would have been more awkward if we had been sitting together in person in the same room as each other. Mm -hmm. But I felt angry and resentful because I knew that this chance I had to actually witness the wedding, it was all based on a fluke. If it had gone on as normally planned, I just wouldn't have been invited. I don't have as much of a connection with these people as I did two years ago. And excuse my language, but it pisses me off. Mm -hmm. I wish I had had better relationships with these people. I wish I hadn't made some stupid mistakes which caused those relationships to fail. I wish that my bond of friendship was stronger, not just with the friend of mine who got married, but also with her boyfriend, because like, he seems to be a nice guy, but I don't really know him. So I was feeling these two very conflicting emotions. And in the aftermath of watching the wedding, I just wanted to go out and do something stupid. I wanted to act passive aggressive towards the people who were watching the live stream alongside me. I wanted to take shots at them. And I knew that I couldn't do any of that because that would be wrong and stupid and immature. And so what I usually do when I'm dealing with negative emotions is that I try to find someone to talk to. And the best person I ended up talking to was our mutual friend, Mark Wong. The conversation we had lasted for about an hour. And during that time, he pointed out that even though I hadn't really handled things all that well back then, the way that my friends had chosen to treat me in response wasn't really any better. The way that he described it was demonic, and he likened it to witchcraft, which I don't know if I'd go that far, but... The, sorry, the things that they were doing? Yeah, like some of these people socially ostracized me because they wanted to make sure I agreed to something that I didn't believe in and it's not something I ever felt comfortable with. Wow. You read the document that I shared with our group where I detailed these experiences. You know where I'm coming from. Like 
I still want to love these people. I still want to believe that they have a purpose in my life because they're Christian. I'm Christian. It would be really stupid if after we die, we met each other in heaven and we were like, hey, remember that time where we had this really stupid argument and totally destroyed our relationship because we couldn't come to an agreement on a few things? And I don't want that to happen. I want to believe in these people and I want to value them because I once believed that they valued me. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I kind of realized that after talking with Mark, maybe it was a good thing that I had some distance between myself and some of these friends. Did they value you for your interest that you shared before you kind of changed your life? Well, what's interesting is that the time that I began getting socially ostracized also happened to coincide with a time in my life where I was trying to change myself and trying to improve my character. And I would say that 2020 in particular was a year filled with growth. I managed to become financially secure, like you. I managed to get a job that paid me very well. I learned how to drive a car. And I've been reading a lot of books on self-improvement. But the thing is, people aren't going to know that you've become a better person if they've blocked you and shut you out of their life the moment you decided to take the initiative and try to improve yourself through some sort of redemption quest. Right. No, I totally get that. You know, I feel like them inviting you, although it kind of hurt to know that if this was a face-to-face type wedding event, you most likely wouldn't have been invited. I feel like if you kind of switched the way that you looked at it, and which you did great, you still showed up for the wedding, even though it was online. I think that showed your love for them in an unconditional way. They might not know what you're feeling, but they might feel good about having invited you. But you can be there because you're attending just to support them in their good time. And then just leave it at that, I think. Yeah. The thing is, though, I wasn't specifically invited. It was more of an open invitation for anyone who happened to be friends on Facebook. Oh, I see. Yeah. And still, that's good that you did still show up because it showed some support. I suppose. But anyway, just to sum it up, the way that I see that God was working in that moment. Even though I had the opportunity to react poorly, the fact that I didn't shows me that God and his Holy Spirit have had a very good influence in my life in making sure that I maintain self-control. Even if nobody knows it and nobody I know really cares. Mm -hmm. Because if that had been me two or three years ago, I just would have reacted in a very immature manner. God has put in my life people like Mark, people who are there to encourage me and give me counsel when I need it. They are the people who are honest, who are not only going to tell me that I'm looking back to the past for something that's now less than what it was, but who also show me a better way forward into the future. Right, right. Yeah, no, I get it. Anyways, as we're talking about looking to the past, let's talk about your past. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah there's a colorful one that's for sure 
So we were talking a little bit about this on Christmas Eve and a call that we were having with our group. I got bits and pieces of that story, but I want to learn more about it. So if you could explain how your origin began, let's start with that. So um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with the Toronto area, but I grew up, uh, as I said, I was born and raised in Toronto. I'm the oldest of three. We're all one year apart. I have two younger sisters. My mother came to Canada when she was five years old. So she's basically brought up in Canadian society and she was given an arranged marriage through my grandfather. My father had immigrated to, was sponsored to Canada to marry my mother. Once he sponsored his mother and his sister to Canada and they received their citizenship shortly after he separated from my mother and then they eventually got a divorce. He left when I was about six years old. And so my mother raised all three of us by herself. She would often work two jobs at a time. So she was in home often. And we grew up in Toronto community housing predominantly throughout my childhood years. And a lot of these neighborhoods are disenfranchised. The residents I live in there are disenfranchised. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of broken families. I grew up with no father figure in my life. It was essentially three females living with me, my two sisters and my mom. And I grew up around women, didn't grow up around a lot of men. So that, you know, at 29 years old right now, I'm still trying to figure out what it is to be a man, which is unfortunate because I see a lot of people who have had a lot of um, male figures in their lives. And I think it really helps. But anyways, I think because of the lack of guidance, my family's Hindu. And what happened was when I was about nine years old, there was a bunch of people from a local church that would come through our building, knock on the door throughout the building and just invite people to Friday night dinners. After the dinner, they invite us to the sanctuary next door and they have services. So after a few services, that's when I gave my life to Christ. And how that happened was through a worship service, I felt this presence and it was Holy Spirit that came over me and just drew me to the altar. And I was just emptying out my heart at the altar. I was in the form of just weeping and just, I could not stop crying. I I think it kind of worried my mother a little bit. And it wasn't even a uh, a sad type of crying. It was more of a inner washing. Like, I don't know how much, how better to explain it, but it was like something within me was just being renewed inside. I just... I was being cleansed from the inside and I just, it was just tears of joy, endless tears of joy. Like I was just crying my face off. It seemed like a couple of hours at least on that altar, just weeping. But I became a Christian at nine years old. Mark Wong is our mutual friend. He's now a pastor. He was a youth leader at the time. Around 13, 14 is when he came into my life and he was a, a big mentor in my Christian walk. And I was really serious about my Christian life. I was so zealous. I experienced a season of like this zeal that I I feel like it's unmatched. I don't think I can relive that experience, that season in my life. But the problem was at home, there was no support. It was only at church. I had Mark. I had the people at church. But the moment I left that church community, there was no support at home. My mom wasn't saved like how I was. Maybe she was saved, but she wasn't living her life for God. So my sisters were younger than me and they hadn't figured it out either yet. So I was just on my own and it was becoming a little too much for my mom, if I can recall. 
she was just like, you know, you're becoming too Christian. You're t- it's just too much. You know, you're going a little overboard with it. That didn't really do me in, in terms of me starting to backslide. I eventually did backslide. But what happened was I was, I had reached the epitome of my puberty and I wanted to see what the world had to offer. So I kind of said, you know what, I can't, how long am I going to do this? I let my flesh take over and I wanted to go out there and experience what the world had to offer. Through that, I didn't have the leadership that I, I needed, especially a male type of leader in my life. I start to get in trouble with the police a lot getting kicked out of my house a lot. I was in shelters. My other family members, my grandparents were there at the time, but they couldn't handle me either. I was getting expelled from schools, never showing up for school, and just hanging out with the wrong people. Did you consider yourself a Christian at this point, or was it just something that was part of your past, something that you had decided to move on from? I put God on the back burner. Like I really didn't want to think about him. Actually, the matter of fact is the only time I turned to God was in my my lowest moments. And those would be when I was locked up in the youth detention center, not knowing if I would get bail. And so I felt like I was using God to when I only needed him. And I wasn't trying to maintain a relationship when times were good. But in those times, I wasn't really focusing on God. But I only reached out to him in my deepest moments of despair when I didn't know how long I would be locked up for And I did that several times. Eventually, it wasn't me going back to Christ that had me stop doing what I was doing. It was me realizing that I'm soon to turn 18. And if I continue down this life of crime, the government's not going to forget the things that I've done in the form of having an adult criminal record. And that's kind of harder to get rid of and be pardoned from than a juvenile one. I was realizing that I had to pull up my socks, get my act together. And this wasn't a life that I was going to be fruitful living. So before I turned 18, I cleaned up my act. When I turned 18, I got into security. I was doing a little bit of the security and policing kind of piqued my interest. I'm now 29 years old. I started security when I was 18. In between that time, I left security for about five years and became a flight attendant with a Canadian airline. And I got to travel the world, which surprised me because coming from low-income neighborhoods in the city of Toronto, I never thought that would ever even leave the province, let alone correction. I was an air cadet for a little bit, so I did get to leave the province. So I'll rephrase that. I didn't think that I would even leave the country. And it's just amazing what my eyes have seen, Uh, what I never thought I could see. And God bless me with that job. I honestly feel like that was an amazing opportunity. Who knows if that will continue after the pandemic and people start flying again, if uh, God so wills. But I was able to travel and that was that was an amazing experience. But the ultimate goal before becoming a flight attendant was that I wanted to become a police officer. The only thing that was stopping me from wanting to become a police officer was, yes, I did get my youth criminal record expunged. So there's I have a clean slate. However, when you're trying to apply to become a police officer in Canada, although they give you a clean criminal record, they keep occurrence reports on file. For everything that you've ever done, that you've ever had contact with police in the past, there is an internal record of that within the service itself. So they don't share that with anybody, but they keep them for their own personal records. And so if I want to become a police officer, every police service has free reign to access that type of information. So I felt that all the things that I had done as a youth 
And I'm still struggling with that fear to this day. Um, we've been praying over it through our Zoom calls recently. But I feel like all of the things that I have done in the past would work against me. Although I have come a long way from my behaviors and the way that I was in the past, and I, I feel like I have a lot to offer. And the reason why I want to become a police officer was I understood the struggle of being a misguided youth and kind of pushing the envelope to see how rebellious you can get because there's, you know, you got hormones flying around, you're confused, there's a lack of direction, and you just, you're frustrated with life. And sometimes people's outlet that way is to kind of live on the fringes of society and be a risk taker, start to get in trouble with the police. That rebellious, it's sometimes just a phase for people. And I feel like as a police officer, I can meet somebody who is in the same position that I used to be in and be that beacon of hope for them in their most pressing times. Whereas if they were to meet somebody else, another police officer instead of me, maybe the outcome of their situation would have taken a different turn. So I feel like I could have been more of a better opportunity for someone to encounter when dealing with the police, given my past. But the thing is, it was a double-edged sword because I feel like my past would be advantageous for me to be more understanding with youth in crisis. But at the same time, it's my past that would hinder me even being hired with a police service and becoming a police officer. Do you think that you could, I don't know, become a youth worker, uh, a, a support worker? That's a good question. But for me, a reason why being a police officer really appealed to me was that I don't know if I grew up in bad neighborhoods or what I was, the unpredictability of my life growing up, but I enjoy the dangerous aspect of the job. I'm not somebody who will jump off of an airplane and parachute. I don't seek trouble, but I'm not going to run away from it if it happens. I like turning that corner and not knowing what's on the other side type of danger. So I, I enjoy that. I recently joined the military as a reservist to kind of not only get that experience under my belt, that if I do so choose to apply to the police service, it's another thing to add to the resume, but also to feed that kind of desire to be in those unpredictable and at times dangerous situations. So that's why being a police officer really fit the bill for me. Okay. What do you think of people who are against the police? I guess someone in your own situation, the vast majority of people like that, they might take their experiences as evidence that all cops are bad, the police can't be trusted. What made your mind go in a different direction than that? I feel like it's interesting. I saw a on the New York Police Department's social media page, there was a high-ranking officer who was discriminated by the police growing up in New York and decided to join the police. And this was posted during the time of when the Black Lives Matter movement, it was very prominent in our media. What that officer said was he joined the police service because he wanted to change the way that policing should be. And he felt the best way that he can do that is from the inside out. He wanted to change the organization from the inside I'm not saying I can be a one-man army for all the um, issues that are taking place in policing, but I feel like policing is a necessity in our society. We need to have a gatekeepers of society, but the only thing is there's a lot of bad apples and there's a culture issue there that needs to be fixed and repaired. And there's a lot of years of that type of culture that's gotten us to where we are now. And I think me being a member of the service 
I can kind of do what that officer sought to do, where he wanted to join and change the service from the inside. I feel like I have a lot to offer in terms of us helping to change the way that the public looks, especially minorities look at police officers in our country and North America. Yeah, definitely. You don't have to go into detail about these things if you don't want to, but where exactly did you stand on the scale of evil during your juvenile delinquent days? Like, you've mentioned that you've had a record, you've tried very hard to get it expunged. Did you do things like steal cars, steal from a convenience store, murder someone? (laughs) So I would say it was more like assaults and stuff like that. And then a bunch of charges that were related to not meeting my conditions of bail. And so always getting in trouble for breaking my conditions. But it was getting to the point where I could have gone into some really bad things that would have put me in jail for a long time. But luckily, my senses got to the better of me for the so to speak. And I just kind of, I got my act together. And I saved myself from a really bad trajectory in life. So I wouldn't say I was evil per se, but I would say I was about to, if I didn't stop myself, I would have gotten into some really bad things. Were you afraid of going to jail or was there some sort of other motivator in mind? Yeah, I was afraid of going to jail, especially, I don't know if you've seen a documentary called the Khalif Browder story on Netflix, but he was a youth who was charged for some stupid thing. Uh, I don't even think it was rightly charged. Like it was, I think it was a false charge. Anyways, they put him in the system and he kept going in, staying in the system. But he was in a youth detention center in New York. And I feel like youth are a little bit more dangerous than adults are sometimes because they just get violent for no reason. There's no rhyme or reason for the way that they act. And so that unpredictability was really threatening to me. And so I, I didn't want to be in that state of fear on a regular basis. And so, yeah, I was I was essentially, I would say, uh, to be completely open with you, I was scared of being in prison. I was scared of being in jail. And that was a motiva- definitely a motivating factor for me to clean up my act. Was there a positive incentive in place? The positive incentive for me was realizing this before I had become an adult, and I realized that I have an opportunity to change my life. I was just glad that I realized it at an early stage and that I didn't have to go through a lot of issues that I would have otherwise gone through if I didn't get my act together before becoming an adult. So how did this lead to you turning back to God? How did you get involved in the church community again? And how did you get to a point where you didn't feel ashamed to go back I started security 18, but around 23, I started working at doing security at the CN Tower. And there was one security guard who was very different from the rest of them. And something gravitated me towards him. And I found out that he was a Christian. We started speaking about the things of God. I told him where I was at in terms of cleaning up my act because I didn't want to get in trouble. But my walk with God was not where it should have been. I did explain to him like I did to you that I I wanted that zeal that I had as a young boy for a relationship with God. And I was trying to reestablish that. And I think it was because he was basically a walking billboard of what I wanted to be. And in terms of being a Christian, 
And so he referred me to a church, sent me a couple of YouTube videos on how the pastor there, the messages he was bringing to the congregation on YouTube. And I decided to join the church. I started getting into it, but I wasn't really there. I got engaged to somebody that I met through a coworker of mine. She was a Mormon at the time. And I wasn't engaged with her. We were just dating. But I told her that I would like to get married to her. But it, I don't think it was going to be possible because she's a Mormon and I'm a Christian. And we weren't equally yoked, I told her. And she was kind of upset about it. And I told her, I don't want her to become a Christian for the sake of us being married. But if she sees the truth in Christianity, then I would encourage her to explore it, but not to do so for the sake of our relationship. She ended up becoming a Christian, but unfortunately, I wasn't serious about my relationship with God. We were living in sin, and we were playing house, but we weren't really husband and wife. I moved in with her. I shouldn't have done that. So eventually, it broke off. But through that, there was some premarital counseling that was taking place with the pastor. And he told me, you know what, Varun? You are like a hippie Christian. And I kind of laughed and said, what does that mean? He goes, you kind of come and go. You're not consistent. And he said, you need to really take your relationship with God seriously. And so in my effort to salvage my relationship with my ex-fiancé, I wanted to get right with God. It didn't turn out as easy as I thought it would be. I even made a trip to Israel. By this time, once the trip was paid off, I was expecting to be married by then with my uh, fiancé at the time, but it didn't work out. But she had paid for her ticket. I had paid for a ticket. We were supposed to share a room together as a married couple by then. And it just didn't end up working out. So we had to split rooms. I roomed with a couple single guys. She roomed with a couple uh, single females. But we still went on the trip to Israel. First time in my life ever going to Israel. It was amazing. But there was this dark cloud that was over my head. Because everywhere we went, she was there. And the wounds were still fresh from our breakup. So I had some resentment there in terms of her, the church, my pastor, but I didn't leave the church. I'm still at the church because I realized it was an issue of my heart and it was not an issue of the church or the, what the pastor said to me or what she did to me. I feel like she was really good at those counseling sessions, made me look like a bad guy and made her look like the victim in a lot of the circumstances. And so my senior pastor and his wife kind of drew her into their inner circle and I kind of got pushed out to the side, but I still stayed a member of the church. I still am today. But what happened there was I had a lot of head knowledge about the word of God and it wasn't dropping down to my heart. I was still living in sin, still watching porn, still drinking, still like partying as a flight attendant. I would go out and party with the other flight attendants. It was a great time, but I wasn't really focusing on my relationship with God. It was just ultimately destructive at the end of the day. My soul was suffering a lot as a result of it. And I feel like what happened was there was a message on deliverance at church just in October. And in that service, the pastor was talking about how as Christians, we can't be necessarily demonically possessed, but through the activities we choose to do, the sinful activities that we choose to do, we open up a door in our life to let demons take root and put us in bondage. And so things like drinking alcohol or watching porn opens up those doors. And so we basically subject ourselves to that bondage. And so it was through that in that service in just October, today's uh, the end of December. So it's, it's quite fresh. 
but it's where I really truly repented and turned away from it. And it's where all a lot, a lot of that head knowledge that I had about what it was to be a Christian and to walk a Christ-like life, it finally dropped from my head to my heart. And so I think I'm now in a better place as a result of that. So this is another testimony of how God's been good to me throughout the pandemic. Seriously? It happened like two or three months ago? Yeah, it was in October. I mean, I was still watching porn. I was, you know, just, I was being very lukewarm. I was compartmentalizing God. I'd show up on a church service, but then I'd go home and drink. I was very wishy-washy. I wasn't fully surrendering my life to God until that October 13th, 2020. And were you at the church service itself in person or did you see it online? It was an in-person service. They were only allowed to have 30% capacity. So I was able to get a seat in that evening. And I really feel like that message was for me because when I jumped in my car, there was tuned into Christian radio station in Toronto, Joy 1250. And John MacArthur was speaking. And he was talking about how there are people who are deceived amongst Christians and ways to identify them. They're more interested in the byproducts of salvation. Things like the blessings and the gifts that you would get, which is not bad to have, but that shouldn't be your first goal in your Christian walk. It should be more about how to live your life to glorify God. And I wasn't doing that. And I was more interested in things like apologetics because I read a book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. You know, the facts, the historical facts about the truth about Jesus being God and Christianity being true. I was more enthralled with theology than I was actual relationship with God. So anyways, all of those things kind of tied into me realizing that I was missing the mark altogether. And so October 13th was when I really changed my life. So what's the game plan for you going forward? So what I've been doing recently, after that day, every morning I wake up, I'm in the word. I wasn't reading my Bible. I haven't read the Gospels since before my backsliding days. So I'm reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's like, wow, I totally forgot a lot of these stories that took place in the Bible. And so it's just, it's very refreshing to see that. But I've been in the Word more. Fellowshipping with you guys has really been impactful in my life. I feel like Zoom calls are not, don't have the same effect as meeting in person, but they certainly help. It's definitely better than nothing. But the game plan is kind of being more sensitive to Holy Spirit, a little bit more fasting so that I can hear God a little bit better and just kind of seek out his will for my life and to live to glorify him and not to glorify my own desires. What about the rest of your family? You mentioned that your mom, she might have been a Christian. You said you had two sisters. Is your dad still in the picture in your life? So I think I have some forgiveness with my dad that I have to deal with. The thing is, he showed some interest infrequently. He would tell us how much he loved us, but it was always him kind of brainwashing us to say that my mom was bad. She's the one who kicked him out. But, you know, it was conflicting stories. So there's some unforgiveness there in terms of his involvement in my life. When my mother needed financial support as we were growing up, he wasn't there. He diligently sought out cash paying jobs so he didn't have to report an income. And so he was dodging child support that way. But yeah, so there's some unforgiveness with my dad. My two sisters, they've got kids. They're not married. I encourage them to go to church, but I feel like, you know, you never profit in your own home. (laughs) 
So they're not really open to hearing it from me. And I really hope that, and I pray, and I've been praying that God sends the right people in their lives to really soften their hearts and seek out a relationship with God. My mom, she, I believe she was saved, but she just wanted salvation and that was it. She told me on her deathbed, she never felt loved. I didn't help out the situation by uh, being such a troublemaker as a teenager. She said she never felt loved by anybody. Her parents didn't love her. We gave her a hard time. My father never loved her. She never really felt love in this life. And so she just wanted to die. It's very sad, but I feel that she did believe that Jesus is Lord. And so I feel like because of her belief, she is safe and I'll see her in heaven. I just hope that my sisters, while they're here and living and young, that they make the right decision with their lives. And they've got children too. So their children are young and they're watching what their parents are doing. And right now what they're doing is not the greatest. And so I really hope that their eyes of understanding are open and that the kids start to follow suit too, because that generation is going to lead the future. So I really hope my sisters really take it seriously. So we've been praying for them as well. Are your sisters agnostic? Do they embrace their Hindu roots? I would say they're more Christian if they are to believe in anything. But I feel like they have so much hurt in their hearts that they've kind of put God to the side altogether. They don't even want to think about it. One sister, she said that she was only going to church to please my mom. So I don't even know if she actually even said a sinner's prayer. She believes in Jesus. And if she did, if she really means it, the other one, I think she's she's saved, but she's definitely far from living Christian life right now. And I think that's because she made a lot of bad decisions in her life. She's got a lot of pain, but she doesn't want to face her pain. Definitely. Yeah. What do you see as the hope for yourself going into 2021? Well, I've got a decision to make. It's been really pressing upon me that I should start to apply to police service. I hope I can balance out both jobs of being a flight attendant and being a police officer. Flight attendant schedules are designed in a way that you can work about five days a month and get your full-time hours in and still have another job on the side. So right now it's kind of the perfect storm. If I just pull up my socks and start getting to work and try to put my application in police services, if I get hired within the appropriate time frame and get trained, I can have the best of both worlds. But I just have to step out of my fear of my past, trust in God, and see if I can live out that dream of becoming a police officer as well. Yeah. And even if you fail, maybe it won't be like this for the rest of your life. Maybe you just need some more time. Absolutely. Another thing is I don't want to have a regret in the future if I've never applied that I could have applied, but I, I didn't know or... I didn't apply because of my fear and I, I will never know if I was would have ever been successful. So I have to at least try once. Okay. One more question I want to ask before we wrap things up. How exactly are you still a flight attendant when the airline industry is not really doing that well at the moment? Yeah. So my airline has just put us on furlough. So basically... They're taking advantage of the subsidy that the federal government's giving them to keep us on the payroll. So I'm basically on a leave of absence. And so they have five years to call me back. So I got laid off in April and they've got five years from April 1st, 2020 to call me back to work. 
So depending on what the demand is for flying and how everything rolls out in the near future, I'll determine when I'll get called back to start working again. So I'm just kind of on standby in terms of getting called back to work. If it'll happen, we don't know. So you're basically getting paid to do nothing? Yeah, so that's also been a benefit. Through this program, it allows you to get another job while you wait under that specific subsidy program. And so I've recognized that it's a financial blessing. And so I've been trying to be responsible with that money and invest it wisely because this is essentially a once in a lifetime opportunity amidst this pandemic that we're experiencing. And so I'm trying to maximize its benefits. Okay. Before we go, is there anything you want to plug or promote? Anything you want to recommend? I would just say, you know, especially now in a time where times are tough, just stay in the word and fellowship. If you're listening to this and you have some struggles or you think nobody will understand, speak up, speak to other people because iron sharpeneth iron and connect with other believers. It's really important to fellowship, even though we can't meet in person, we can meet online and prayer goes a long way. Just don't isolate yourself because I'm experiencing that right now. The loneliness and people like Nathan, people like Mark Wong are really important right now. So I'm sure you can find those type of people in your lives. Just stay in God's word. Let it encourage you. Let it ground you. Let it be your foundation and don't give up. Trust God no matter what. Definitely. Well, see you guys. This has been Because We're Not the Same, a podcast hosted, produced, and edited by Nathan Raymond Ray, with special guest Varun. To listen to more episodes, you can follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Verbal, iHeartRadio, or Podbean. You can also visit our Facebook page or our website, bwntscast.wordpress.com. If you're interested in coming on the show as a guest, feel free to reach out to us and we'll see about having you on. Thank you for listening.